Okay, last week we, uh, you know, saw that God made a huge promise to Abraham. That was what Paul is focusing on here in Romans chapter 4. A huge promise to Abraham. He went to this guy Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, I'm going to make you the father of nations. Through you, through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He said to him, from you, kings are going to flow. He said to him progressively over the years, through you and Sarah, your offspring will be a blessing to all of the world. And your descendants are going to be for you like the stars in the sky and like the sand on the seashore. You're going to have an innumerable uh, impact here on earth. All right? God made these massive promises to Abraham. And Abraham, as Paul quoted earlier in, Genesis, or in uh, Romans 4, uh, Abraham, he believed God. God made him this insane promise, and Abraham believed God, Genesis uh, chapter 15 tells us, and it was accounted to him, imputed to him, added to him, credited to him for righteousness. So God made the big promise, something that Abraham could never do. And he says, this is what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. And Abraham heard all that, and belief entered into his heart, and he says, I believe that. I believe that you're going to do that for me. So why is Paul focusing on that right now? Well, the reason that he's focusing on that right now is because in the first three chapters of Romans, he lays out this train wreck of news and says the world is so lost. We're under the wrath of God. We're so fallen and broken and despairing and all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, there is like a gift that God will give. The gift of righteousness, approval, acceptance, worth. He'll say, I receive you for those who believe that Jesus became the propitiation for the wrath of God, that he satisfied the wrath of God, that in his body on the cross of Calvary, he died for the sin of the world. And we receive by believing in that, and that he rose from the grave, the righteousness of God, which includes the redemption of God, the justification uh, from God. We receive all of this by simply just believing in it. So it's this huge promise that God makes, just like he made a huge promise to Abraham, he makes a huge promise to us, and then we, like Abraham, it's for us to then say, I believe that. I believe that. I receive it. I believe it. And as we believe it, just like Abraham, it was accounted to him for righteousness, we also receive the righteousness of God by simply believing in what God said he would do or that he has done in Christ on the cross uh, for you uh, and for me. So it's really powerful what the point that Paul uh, is making. So he kind of continues that theme here in this section of Romans chapter 4. What he's going to do is he's going to talk to us about where our faith is taking us, where it's going, what we get by faith. And then he's going to talk to us a little bit about the originator, the original faith, the faith of Abraham. Now, when he does that, 
He's not going to do that in order to intimidate us or to discourage us. That really isn't the point. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, maybe looking at the faith of people in the Bible. You know, like when Jesus looked at Peter and said, you know, uh, and Peter says, if that's you walking on the water, command me to come out of the boat and I will come, you know. And Jesus says, it's I, you know, come out, don't be afraid. And Peter gets out of the boat, he begins to walk on water. People like to rip on Peter for eventually beginning to drown, but it's a very very impressive to me that he got out of the boat. I probably would have been one of the, uh, those 11 guys just like, we're having a debate on whether that's a ghost or not out there. And you're just saying like, if you say it's you, I'll come. Like, well, this seems like a ghost would do, we would mess with you, you know, kind of thing. And so he did it. I mean, that's impressive stuff. And maybe in times like that, you're um, intimidated by that kind of faith. But that's really not why Paul is going to talk to us about Abraham's original faith. He's actually encouraging us that the same kind of faith that he had to enter into the righteousness of God is the kind of faith that we've had if you've believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And now we, like Abraham, can be growing in our faith uh, because that's what this is all about. That's what he said in Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. He's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. uh, For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So there's faith gets you in, but then you keep living by the same way you got in. You get in by faith, but you keep living by faith. And that's why then he says, for it's written, the just shall live by faith. So we're to be walking by faith, and it's a growing faith as we trust uh, the Lord and walk uh, with him. So let's take a look at this, starting out in verse uh, 13. He says, for the promise to Abraham uh, and his offspring... So you see that there, verse 13. The promise for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, this is interesting on a bunch of levels, but part of the reason that it's interesting to us today, and I'll just remind you of this, but last week we saw at the, in the passage right before this that Paul declared that Abraham is the father of faith for everyone who believes. He believed when he was still technically Gentile. He believed before he'd been circumcised. He believed, obviously, 400 plus years before the law had been given to the nation of Israel. So because of the timeline of his belief, he's the father of faith for everyone, not just Israelites, but for every person who had ever placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So, as a result, when he says in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, when he says offspring, he's not just talking about Jews in this verse. He's talking about you and me, if we've believed in the Lord. And we're going to see that in the verses to come. But So that's why this is, catches my attention, because he says that he would be heir of the world. That's a like massive promise. You and I could go around saying to our children, like, oh, but daddy's going to give you the world. But like, dude, that's not going to happen. But God spoke to Abraham and said, you'll be heir of the world. And it wasn't just a promise to him. It was a promise to his offspring. Now, when you actually look at all the promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22, when you look at all four of those chapters, you discover that actually you don't have an implicit 
uh, or ex excuse me, an explicit promise from God that he would be the heir of the entire world, but it's implied. And it's implied through Jesus, that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. When Jesus comes, Jesus becomes the, the one who wins and, and becomes the preeminent heir of the whole world. And then when you believe in Jesus, you become a co-heir with Christ. So this is like our future, okay? This is a good thing for us to consider and to think about, that a day is coming. You know, Jesus came uh, the first time, went into Jerusalem. They put down the palm branches. That's what we uh, remember on Palm Sunday. Uh, and he went in, and then he left, and then a week later he was crucified, uh, or five days later was crucified, and a week later rose from the grave. But Jesus made a promise that he would return. And when he returns, he will rule and reign with a rod of iron. All of the world will be his. And then the earth as we know it will melt away as a fervent heat, uh, with fervent heat. And a new heavens and a new earth will come. And we, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, we are heirs of that. So like what Paul's doing is he's saying, remember Abraham, really big promise. How did he get it? It's by simply believing. A really big promise to you and to me as well. How do we get it? By simply believing. Let's go on and see what Paul continues to say. He says, For it is the adherents, verse 14, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise void. For the law brings wrath. So anytime you have laws and requirements, the wrath comes because you become guilty of those laws. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. So in other words, he's just saying we cannot become heirs of the world by adhering to the law. It comes by faith. That is why, verse 16, it depends on faith in order that, look at this in verse 16, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Now read the next line with me, because some of you might be saying, I don't think that I'm part of this whole heir of the world kind of thing, or this offspring kind of thing. I don't think that's me as a believer in Jesus. But notice what he says there in verse 16. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, not the uh, genealogy of Abraham or the ancestry of Abraham, but the faith of Abraham, who is, he says, the father of us all. So Paul looks at the Roman church and says that as a believer, because you share the faith of Abraham, he is your father uh, in a sense. Not, of course, in a physical sense. And we're going to deal with that when we get to Romans 9 10 and 11. What about physical Israel? But here he's looking at them and he's saying, you guys are ancestors of Abraham or descendants of Abraham because you believed. Like Abraham believed a, ma a massive promise, so you have believed a massive promise from God and you have entered into uh, the justification that God wants to give to you by uh, faith. But notice this in verse 16. He says, it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. If approval before God comes through your doing good, being a righteous person, trying to be obedient, if 
all of that comes that way, then the word that you can never apply is the word guaranteed. That's the word that Paul uses, though. He says, it comes, it rests on grace that it might be guaranteed. Technically speaking, we would say it this way. We actually are not saved by faith. We are saved by grace and God's grace. And we receive it through faith. In other words, we just add all these huge things that God says, I will do this, I will do that, I will promise this, I will make that happen, I will you know, have the blood of my son shed for you, I will do all of this for you, and you will enter into this gift, this grace, by faith. And what we need to notice here is that Abraham, he, it says in verse 17, he says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham, when he believed, he was not concentrating on himself or his own belief. He was concentrating on God and just saying, that's what you've done for me? Okay, I'll believe that. And the reason that's important is because it's crazy how the human mind works, but we hear this beautiful message that God did all of this and you enter into it by simply believing it or receiving it. And we hear all of that message. And you know the human mind, what we like to do is we like to figure out a way to turn faith, belief, into works where we get so like wrapped up inside the self and going, is my faith legit enough? Is my faith strong enough? Is my faith potent enough? Is my faith really real? And we turn from having a focus on the God who made these ridiculous promises to us and we turn the focus back on the self. And we basically use the word faith, but really the definition we're importing into it is not reception, receiving, faith, but we're actually putting words like works, law, I must be into the word faith. But that's not the way Abraham had it. He just put his eyes on God and he says, I believe this, it's all grace and so it's guaranteed for me. And that is a beautiful place to live before God. Because when you don't have a guarantee, man, your life before God is so shaky, isn't it? If you're feeling that you need to uh, earn your approval in the sight of God, now what does that do to your everyday experience before him? You know, you get up, maybe you open up the Bible and you begin to read it, which is a beautiful thing to do. I, th I think every Christian should do it. You read the Bible, you meditate upon it, you think about the Word of God. You want to see what your Father in heaven is saying to you directly. It's a great thing. But if you wake up in the morning and you read the Bible and you're like, oh, I've just spent half an hour reading the Bible, and, you're, and then you begin feeling like, now God likes me. Now I have his worth. Now I have his righteousness. That is such shaky ground. Because the second that you think an impure thought, the second that you get angry with you know, your neighbor, the second that you're less than holy or spiritual, the second any of that happens, you then that, that foundation that you're standing on just crumbles. 
But when you're standing on a foundation of grace, man, it's beautiful to read the Bible like that. It's beautiful to pray like that. It's beautiful to obey God like that because you know the foundation that you are already standing on. And so Paul says it this way, the promise must rest on grace. And because it is, it is guaranteed to all of his uh, offspring. Now, in verse 18, Paul then goes on and he inspects the faith of Abraham. Now, like I told you, this isn't meant to intimidate us, although it might a little bit, but the main purpose of Paul is to say, this is the faith that Abraham had. This is the kind of faith that you and I can also enter into because if you're a believer, you already have, and so you just want to continue growing uh, in this uh, kind of faith. So let's take a look at Abraham's faith in verse 18 to 22. It says, verse 18, in hope, He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring uh, be. Now, when you track the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, what you discover is there were a lot of moments where this guy could have easily run out of hope. And especially like human hope. Because he got older and his wife got older and they just weren't having any kids. And as they advanced in age, it kind of got to a point where they realized this is only going to be possible with God. We're going to need a little bit of a miracle here. And so he had what is said there in verse 18, hope that he believed against hope. What does that mean? I think what Paul is saying there is that there is a human version of hope, and then there's hope that comes from God. When Abraham was younger and maybe first received the promises, he might have been able to have like a human version of hope. And I I think this will happen. I I believe that this will happen. But things got to a point for for Abraham and Sarah, his wife, where it was just this, I, I don't have any human hope anymore. I only have God hope. I only have divine hope. The thing about human hope is that it only goes so far, but hope in God goes all the way. And notice what it says. It says he hoped in what he'd been told. In other words, as believers, we simply are placing our hope in God and trusting the things that he has spoken over us. So part of Abraham's faith is simply that he hoped in what he'd been told. This is part of the reason that the Bible is so important in your everyday experience with God because the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and that by the word of God. So if there's a famine of God's word in your own life personally, it'll be really hard for that hope to develop because you don't have anything that you've been told, like Abraham did, that you can have hope in. So you have to be told continually by the Lord so that your faith can grow. But notice also in verse 19 it says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. And then Paul gets super blunt when he says, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So the thing about Abraham is that apparently he like got to this point where he's almost 100 years old or about 100 years old. His wife was about 90 years old. And he's just looking around, and what Paul says is he did not, when he considered his body, it's not that he didn't consider it, he did. 
But when he considered it, uh, he uh, did not, verse 19, weaken in faith. He believed that the Lord could still work. In other words, Abraham, he saw his limitations, but he believed God in the middle of those limitations. Or to put it another way, he saw that his limitations were actually God's opportunity. And you know, when you grow in your walk with the Lord and you're growing in faith, you begin to discover more and more that it's actually your limitations that are actually an opportunity for God to work in your life. Uh, you know, like for instance, when Jesus fed the 5,000, you know, they looked at this crowd of people, probably fifteen to 20,000 people in total. It was 5,000 men plus women and children. But they looked out at this crowd of people and the disciples said, Lord, send them away that they can go and buy something to eat. You know, we don't have anything for them. But Jesus said, well, what do you have? Give that to me. And they rustled up five loaves of bread and two fish. That is a limitation. When it comes to, to, to feeding, you know, like a, a stadium's worth of people, five loaves and two fish is not going to go very far. Okay, so they bring that to Jesus. They bring their limitation to Jesus. And Jesus takes it, blesses it, breaks it, and multiplies it in his hands. And with Jesus, their limitation was actually enough for the problem. And so often in our lives, our limitations are the very things that God wants to use to actually uh, be an opportunity for him to work and move through our lives. Like in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, he came to this place in his own life. He wrote to the Corinthians about it in 2 Corinthians. And he said, you know, I had a vision of heaven and this vision of heaven was powerful and beautiful. I heard things that it would be unlawful for me to utter. And he comes out of that vision. He, the vision was so strong for Paul that he said, I don't know if I was there or if I was not there. But I, it was very strong. And he said, I came out of that vision and lest I be puffed up and you know, boast about this vision that I received of heaven, God gave me a, a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. People argue about it. And some people act like they just totally know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was. But it, we don't really know. When we get to heaven, I'm going to ask Paul, like, what was your thorn in the flesh? And we might be surprised. You know, It might have been like a person. But uh, he, he doesn't say. He just said, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, he said, to buffet me. So was it spiritual, physical? We don't know. It might have been an eyesight thing. But he says, I had this thing. He says, I prayed to the Lord three times that he would take it from me. And the Lord didn't. And eventually, Jesus spoke to him and said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And when Paul heard that from Jesus, he got a new mission statement for his life. And he said, so, I have made a determination that I'm going to boast in my infirmities, that I'm going to glory in my limitations and my weaknesses and in my sicknesses and all of that. I'm going to glory in it because it's in my weakness 
that he is strong because his grace is sufficient for me. And any time that you see God working in a person's life, using a person's life, more often than not, you're seeing a person who's come to a place of realizing a limitation in their own hearts, but they stepped out in obedience anyways. And Abraham saw that limitation, but he still believed God in the midst of that limitation. Some of you are here today, and you're, you're feeling like, I could never be that for this person in my life. I could never be the answer that they're looking for. I could never be the spouse that they need. I could never be the friend that they need. I could never be, I could never be used by the Lord in this kind of way. And the Lord is looking at you and saying, it's good that you've realized a limitation in your own strength, but now you need to glory in my power and in my might in the midst of your limitation. Don't wait for the limitation to go away. Believe me in the midst of that limitation. That was the kind of faith that Abraham had. He did not consider the weakness of his own body. Notice also, though, in verse 20, it says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. You have to think about what it was like to be Abraham. I think that probably there were many moments that it was embarrassing to be Abraham. The name Abram, his original name, means uh, exalted father. And the name Abraham, who God gave him that name, means father of nations. So you got this guy for a long time in his life. He cruises up and people say, hey, what's your name? He says, my name is exalted father. And like the next question would be, oh, I can't wait to meet your children. And then he'd have to say, well, I, that I don't have any. That hasn't happened. Oh, but your name's exalted father. How ironic. That's funny, you know, kind of thing. And then God, you know, after years maybe of Abram being like, God, why, why, why the name exalted father? God says, I'm going to give you a new name. And he's like, oh, that'd be awesome because this has been really awkward. And God says, your new name is going to be Abraham. God, that's worse. Father of nations. I don't even have one child and you're naming me Father of Nations, you know, like I think it's an embarrassing thing. Like yesterday, I was watching the Warriors uh, play on TV, and this guy, a warrior, he shot the ball, and it was an air ball. And in basketball, what an air ball is, it means you shoot it, and the you don't the ball doesn't even hit the rim. It's not just that you miss; it's that you miss hard. It doesn't even hit the rim. And there's this thing; it's so horrible. It's like the most mortifying moment in sports to me. But where like in every Every you know arena known to man, when the opposing team shoots an air ball, everybody just spontaneously starts chanting "air ball, air ball." It's horrible. I've been there. I've experienced it. It's a bad feeling. And I saw it yesterday happen in professional sports. You know, thousands of people in San Antonio chanting "air ball." Abraham's name was like the air ball of names. You know. Just like, there's nothing there. I have no children. I have no offspring. I'm called exalted father, father of nations. It was embarrassing. Yet in the middle of all of that, he did not waver at the promise that God had made to him. God declares incredible, dare I say impossible, truths over his people. 
he says to believers, you were in Adam, now you are in Christ. You were in death, and now you are in life. You were in darkness, now you are in light. You were enslaved to sin, but now you are a slave of righteousness in my sight. He declares all of these things about us. He says, you are going to a future with me called heaven. You are mine. Your inheritance in my mind is so firm that according to Ephesians, he says, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places in my sight right now. That's like a wild thing to believe. You see, it's not embarrassing It's not embarrassing at all to become a really good person who then proclaims, I think God will receive me because I'm a good person. That's not embarrassing. Our culture receives it. Our culture accepts it. Yeah, look at you. You're generally very good. You're generally very generous and very kind and very thoughtful. You're a good person. I can't imagine God judging a person like you. But it's embarrassing when you consider who you really are in the privacy of your own heart and you come to the place where you agree with the Bible and you say, like Abraham, I in my flesh am dead. In me dwells no good thing. I am dead in trespasses and sins. And God saw me like that. And as I just believed his promises, he changed me. And he says, this is who you now are in my sight. That is very often a very hard thing to believe God for. And Abraham, he just said, you say these things about me. I believe these things. I will not waver in this promise that you have made over my life. He did not cons- when he considered his body, he did not get stuck there, but he considered the Lord and he did not lower his expectations of what God would do in his life. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise. As he, verse 20, gave glory to God. If you want your faith to grow, give glory to God. If you want your faith to increase, worship God. If you want to be able to more successfully walk by faith and not by sight, spend time with God, sing to God, get your focus upon God. The place that my faith decreases the most is when I think about myself. Someone asked me recently, should I meditate? Should I go inward? Should I think about the self? Should I go inward? And I said, no, 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 a thousand times no. That's not where you need to go. You need to go up, not in. You need to go to God. You need to be thinking about God, setting your mind upon Him, your heart upon Him, your devotion towards Him. Because as you do and you see the greatness and the glory of God, then your faith grows as well as you see who God truly is. And he, verse 21, became fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham came to a place where he was fully convinced. It says in verse 20 that he grew strong in his faith. It says in verse 21 that he became fully convinced in his faith. When did that happen in Abraham's life? When was he fully convinced? Well, I think that where you see that most fully is in Genesis chapter 22. By then, Isaac had been born. He had had a child. Isaac was now at least a teenager, if not a full-grown man. 
And God spoke to Abram and said to him, Take your son Isaac, your only son Isaac, whom you love, to Mount Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice to me. Now at the end of the day, God wasn't going to require that Abraham sacrifice Isaac. When the knife was raised, God would speak to Abraham and say, no, don't do it. And we're horrified by the, even the request of it, and that's good. It should help us understand that what Jesus did for us was horrible in a sense. He is the one who shed his blood. He is the son who actually died. God never required a human sacrifice from any of us, but he gave his only begotten son for you and for me. But when Abraham was doing all of that, what was going through his mind? Well, it tells us in Hebrews, it tells us that he had heard the promise of God. God had said, through Isaac, your seed will be blessed. The promises, all these huge promises I've made, they come through Isaac. And he looked at Isaac, and he realized Isaac doesn't have any children. And so Isaac has to have kids for this promise to be fulfilled. So what it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 is that with that promise in his mind, Abraham believed that if necessary, God would raise Isaac back from the dead in order to fulfill the promise that he'd made. In other words, Abraham was more confident at that stage in his life in the word of God and the promise of God that was more real to him than the heartbeat of his own son. That's incredible faith. But it took a lot of time in years for his faith to develop to that. In fact, some of you are probably sitting here this morning going like, now wait a minute. Like, I read the book of Genesis. I saw the times when Abraham went down to Egypt and the kings in Egypt were like, hey, who's that that you're traveling with? Because Sarah apparently was a beautiful woman and Abraham was a little afraid that they were going to kill him in order to take his wife. And so he said like, well, like she's my sister. Don't kill me so that you can have her. Like maybe you read about those times or you read about the time when Sarah comes to him and says, you know, sweetie, I'm getting old. It's very clear. We're not going to have a child. This promise is not going to come to pass through me, but maybe you you should go into my maidservant Hagar and have a child with her and her child will be the one that fulfills the promises of God. And Ishmael was born and God rejected Ishmael. That was not the way the promise was going to be fulfilled. And maybe you've read those things and right now you're saying, come on, like Paul's being really generous. This is, by the way, the way the whole New Testament is. The false and the stumblings of the Old Testament saints are just not in there. God looks at these guys and he's like, the faith, the faith was awesome. The faith was legit. The faith was so strong. And I think that should be encouraging because God, I think, looks at his people with these like crazy grace-colored glasses, these lenses where he's like, look at that faith. You know, and Abraham's like, I really don't feel like I got it right now. Like, do you even know about Ishmael? Because God says to Abraham, he says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. He's like, I don't even see it. I don't even see it. Abraham's faith, though, it grew to that point. It grew to that point. It began, he just said, I hear these promises, I believe them, and it grew to this incredible point. And that's where it's to go. 
in our own lives as well. That's why, verse 22, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It was real, legit faith. It grew and it grew and it grew. It developed, it developed, it developed. And this is how we are to continue to live before God. We are to be walking by faith. God makes a promise. We believe it. This is a continual interaction uh, with the Lord. So this is how Paul applies this whole connection to Abraham. Verse 23. But if the words, excuse me, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but, verse 24, for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham received a massive promise. He believed it. We do too. What is the massive promise we are given from God that we should believe in? It's very simple. Verse 25, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. What you come to a place of is you just agree. You say, my sin, my judgment, my wrath that I deserved, that that was coming to me, my guilt, it was placed upon Jesus when he was delivered up to death. And when he rose from the dead, my justification was sealed. And what Paul is announcing boldly and really gloriously seems to me that he's saying that was the faith Abraham had and it just developed into a really awesome walk before God. And if you had this kind of faith before God where you believed in the gospel, then you have, done the, you have, you have taken a massive step and you have believed in this really incredible thing that God has done for you. So you've kind of done the hard part of faith already. So just continue in the walk of faith that he has uh, for you. And the life of faith in trusting the Lord and his promises is an electric kind of life. And so I wanted to close by reading to you the original call that God placed upon Abraham. And the reason I'm doing this is because a lot of times when dryness comes into your Christian life and experience, if you've been born again, a lot of times when dryness comes is when God says to you, do this, take this step of faith, and you don't. And what happens is he just waits. He waits for you to go back to that point and to just walk in the thing that he asked you to do. That step of faith that he wanted you to take. And when you go back to that, the great joy and blessing comes in as you live that thing that he has called you to live. So let's listen to the word that God spoke to Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That was the first word that he heard from God. Go. 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 So this isn't like my sneaky way to try to get anybody to go to Sanctuary 2 or something like that. (laughs) I just know that over and over again in our own hearts, our Father, by His Spirit, in different areas of our lives, He says, go. That thing, go. That person, go. That conversation, go. That responsibility, go. That ministry, go. That volunteering of yourself, go. That thing, go. And when we dry up, when we say no, 
But the walk of faith says more and more, yes, I'll go, I'll go. So however that applies into your own heart and life, say yes to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you because you've, you've loved us and you've blessed us. You've given us, Father, such a beautiful opportunity, Lord, here to walk with you. And Father, we pray and we ask, Lord, this morning that you would strengthen this faith, Lord, of ours that you would develop us in faith, and that you would help us, Lord, to walk by faith. Lord, we pray that you would give us a real strength, Lord, in it, that you would grow, Lord, this faith of ours. And maybe just in your heart this morning, you might say to the Lord, Lord, I believe, yet help my unbelief. Lord, strengthen this faith that resides inside of me. Mm. Thank you, Lord. So, Lord, we love you and thank you this morning. Grow, Father, we pray, this faith of ours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.